If you're watching us live, um, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you wherever you listen to us. Give us a rating so that, you know, I don't know, they tell me that it, it helps the al- algorithm. Um, I'm not sure, but presumably it does. Can't hurt. It can't hurt. Um, so do that for us. Also, uh, um, our line is still open in overtime. That phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can call or text throughout the show. You might get on the air, or you can leave us a voicemail, send us a text throughout the week. You might address it on the next program. Yeah, we haven't had uh, any voicemails to play in a couple weeks. I know we haven't had the line open very often. We have been pretty slam-packed, so uh, definitely leave some voicemails throughout the week if you're interested. Yep. So uh, before we get to McKenna, we're going to talk, there's this, you know, we're going to continue talking about the push to privatize public schools as long as it's relevant in Alabama um, and and nationally. And there's this, there's this huge trend nationally to privatize public schools. And they're doing it behind this, this facade of like wokeness or whatever, you know, this meaningless kind of thing. And one of the things that we try to do when we talk about this issue is we and and one of the things that we want to point out is that none of the advocates ever actually show you proof cases right it, it and 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 listen for it listen for it and 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 look for it when you're reading and listen for it when you're listening to these folks they never tell you any statistics or or even honestly any like anecdotes about how quote unquote school choice works they'll give you these fluffy hypothetical stuff theoretically maybe somebody's going to get a better education theoretically they never ever give you any data to prove that. And they very rarely give you an, an anecdote. Occasionally they might give you an anecdote, but that's very rare. And so so listen for that. Um because this the the school choice, the school vouchers, school privatization, it has been done. It has been done. In they they have enacted full-scale voucher programs in states across the country. 
And so theoretically, if they really wanted to strengthen their case, if their case was actually rock solid, <clears throat> they would be coming out with all of this information about how, look at how much student performance has increased with the implementation of a voucher program. And one of the arguments that they say is that, oh, competition is gonna make the failing public schools even better. Well, if that was the case, then show us the data. Show us that's the case. Prove it to us because it's, we've done the thing, so prove it to us. And they don't because it's not real. It doesn't actually benefit uh, students. It doesn't actually uh, benefit the failing quote unquote public schools. And uh, the only people that it benefits are the wealthy people who get subsidies for private schools that their kids were already attending and the CEOs of these private schools. Um, but we have this, but there's also, you know, the anecdotal data and the anecdotal data is, you know, it's, it's important and it's relevant. And there, there is an anecdotal case out of Montgomery of just what happens when you have an unaccountable charter school. And so Adam, talk to us about this charter school in Montgomery. Yeah, this is the infamous lead Academy. Uh, and this is just the latest scandal in a series of scandals, uh, frankly, from this charter school in Montgomery. And uh, in this case, we've got some, uh, let's say, mismanagement. Uh, it would be one way of phrasing it. The bottom line is that uh, this Montgomery Charter School Lead Academy is going to have to repay $1.9 million to the feds. But it doesn't have the money, they say. Uh, and that's according to a recent article by Trisha Crane with AL.com, published on March 17th. So what happened is that there was an audit. And an audit found that the school did not accurately track more than 600,000 meals served in 2021 and 2022. In 2022, the U.S. Department of Agriculture received an anonymous complaint alleging that Crave Cafeteria Solutions, the vendor supplying meals at Lead Academy, inflated the number of children and meals served during the 2021-22 school year. I'm going to pause here and just say, you will hear folks, particularly supporters of charter schools, say that, well, these are public, these are public charter schools, they're public schools. Uh, they're not for profit because in Alabama, at least, you know, they are public charter schools, but there are so many ways to put private, I mean, put public dollars in private hands. And this is a prime example, right? At a normal school, the school feeds its own kids. Employees of the school system prepare the food and serve the food. And the school system central office purchased the food. In a charter school, you can contract with a vendor to handle this for you. And common sense dictates there's room for malfeasance. So back to the article. After this audit and after the complaint, the school now has to find a way to repay the USDA nearly $2 million. Paul Morin, who serves on the Alabama Public Charter School Commission, which oversees LEAD and other state charter schools, called the audit and questions about the school's leadership a major issue at a recent meeting. 
The commission recently denied the school's request to expand ninth grade enrollment. Now, Lead Academy Board President Charlotte Meadows, a former state legislator, frankly, one of the uh, one of the few on a short list of people, if you had to identify who is behind school choice and school reform and privatization in the state of Alabama, Charlotte Meadows is going to be on, on the short list there. She's at the top. So she is actually the president of this scandalous charter school and formerly served in the legislature. She claims that the school doesn't have any money connected to the meals on hand because the money was used to pay the vendor, Crave. And in statements to AL.com and in their lawsuits, school and Crave cafeteria officials each claim the other party was responsible for properly counting the meals. Right. So now they're just pointing fingers and placing blame. Meadows claimed that Crave employees did not follow proper procedures or keep proper records. She also said the pandemic school year plus shifting federal guidance caused miscommunication. Lead Academy has sued Crave for $2 million, which is the amount owed plus interest. The school claimed the company breached its contract and defrauded the school by inflating the number of school meals it could claim. In January, a judge issued a default judgment and ordered Crave to repay the money. Meadows said Lead Academy is pursuing all legal means to collect the taxpayer's money from Crave so it can return it to the USDA. But Brian Pleasant, who owns Crave, refuted her claims. He said to AL.com that the school staff were responsible for properly counting and claiming the number of schools, I mean the number of students and meals served. So Crave led by Pleasant, filed an appeal in February, and that's still ongoing. Jason Swan with the State Department of Education said the department is working with LEAD Academy officials on next steps. They gave the school until September 2027 to repay the full amount, according to Meadows, which is interesting. Uh, The Alabama Board of Education Vice President Wayne Reynolds, who's from Athens, said in an email to state board members Friday that the State Department should obtain approval from the state board before moving forward with any decisions about the repayment plan. Now, Lead Academy, as I mentioned, this isn't their first scandal. They've been involved in multiple lawsuits. They had issues even getting open. They should have never been allowed to open, frankly. But I'm sure the fact that, you know, they were very well connected uh, may have helped them get their application through. At one point, uh, Montgomery County Schools had to step in and provide meal services for the school. Uh, So, yeah, that had to sting a little bit, right? You're, You're forced to step in and help this school that's siphoning funding and siphoning students from your district. And then they turn around and at least somebody is inflating it, right? That is a very easy way to commit fraud inside the school system, is that you claim you're serving more meals than you really are. And I heard plenty of scuttlebutt in Huntsville over the years representing employees there. Uh, I never, never had any concrete proof 
Never could bust them 100%, but there were allegations. So this is not necessarily unique, but charter schools have more room for fraud, and Lead Academy in particular uh, has quite the scandalous reputation. And so I'll also point you to an article by Josh Moon in the Alabama Political Reporter. What is school choice? Lead Academy is the perfect example. Uh, and so, much like Jacob's introduction, he sort of ties this example of Lead Academy to the broader issue of so-called school choice. Because he points out that this is the most common outcome. Mismanagement, alleged fraud, allegations of special needs children being pushed away, scandal after scandal, and perhaps most importantly, educational outcomes that are typically worse overall for students. So, Lead Academy, there's a lot more we could go into there, frankly, but um, it, it's, it's, if you're interested in like what has the charter school movement looked like in Alabama, check out Lead Academy. That's going to give you a good idea of the sort of issues that we're, we're seeing uh, and some of the fraud, some of the uh, mismanagement, some of the segregation. And by segregation, I don't mean just on race, but ability, class. Um, there's a lot of disturbing things that happen in these charter schools. And the National Public for the Network for Public Education uh, has been really on top of this from the federal level. They release reports nearly every year on fraud in the federal charter school system. We're talking millions of dollars of fraud. Straight up fraud, not just like, eh, maybe it's not the best use of money. No, we're talking legitimately fraud. Uh, millions of dollars has come from taxpayer money. Uh, back in 2019, they had a report showing the federal government had lost a billion dollars to charter school waste and fraud. That was 2019, and that was just what the federal government had lost. Uh, it's really it's disturbing. And I know from my experience in Huntsville City Schools, whenever you deal with vendors, you always have risk of corruption. You have risk of misallocation of funds and, and mismanagement of funds. Uh, and then you have the battles over the contract renewals, which can often end in lawsuits. I remember a few years back, Huntsville City Schools wanted to swap to a different vendor for their supply, uh, their supply of temp labor, right? And they disqualified one of the vendors because they had been so awful. Then they ended up in court over it. Then there was the whole situation with uh, Pinnacle, which was the privatized alternative school in Huntsville. And it just so happened the CEO of Pinnacle happened to be dating the superintendent of Huntsville City Schools at the time. And that whole thing blew up into competing lawsuits where each side was blaming the other. It's just messy. And, and, and that is why when folks want to tell you to run schools like a business, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Or they do know what they're talking about and they stand to gain financially. All right, Adam, thanks for that. Uh, so next up, we're going to be talking to McKenna Schuler. Is she in the Zoom? 
She is, yes. Fantastic. Yeah, so McKenna Schuler is a reporter for the Orlando Weekly. She has been reporting on the Disney negotiations and as well as uh, some of the anti-union stuff going on in the legislature in Florida. McKenna, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. Absolutely. Excited to have you. You've been doing some great stuff on the uh, Disney negotiations in particular. That's what I've been following um, most closely from your work. And uh, the last time that we spoke about this a month ago, six weeks ago, something like that, Disney workers had just voted down a deal by what was it, 96% uh, offered by Disney? Was that right? Is that right? Yeah, it was about 14,000, uh, a little over 14,000 workers that um, voted, and of that, 96% voted it down. And that was and, Disney's so-called best offer, which right. evidently wasn't. Right, <laughs> right, right. It's, uh, yeah, the last best and final is always uh, not, is is very rarely actually the last best and final offer. Um, so they voted it down. Uh, by a wide margin, and uh, after that, the negotiators for both sides came back to the table, and what do you know, there is a better offer on the table, and that offer has been tentatively accepted by the bargaining committee of the, uh, uh, of the unions. It hasn't gone to a vote by the members yet, right? No, that's going to be next Wednesday. Yeah, so it hasn't been accepted by the members, and so it's important to understand that a tentative agreement is just, you know, more or less, you know, the, the bargaining committees for the unions are, are saying, yes, you know, this is a good deal. We recommend people ratify it. Whereas before, the bargaining committees of the unions were, they were actually campaigning against accepting the contract, right? Yeah, so so definitely a different, uh, you know, and so obviously this deal has come a long way at least in in the eyes of the negotiators for the unions. And so talk to us about the difference between the contract that was voted down and the contract that uh, Disney employees are going to be voting on this week. Yeah, so even between that, there was another offer that Disney came back with after the 96% rejection. And that ended up actually being a worse offer uh, <laughs> where they, well, so they, the first offer was a, $1 pay raise um, in the first year for many workers. Mm -hmm. And that was overwhelmingly rejected. Then Disney came back and that would have raised the minimum wage, for instance, from 15 to 16. Then Disney came back and said, okay, we'll do 17 this year, but they reduced the retroactive pay for workers. So um, mm -hmm. Paul Cox, president of IATSE Local 631, which represents some of the workers there, he was the way he described it, just kind of like moving around the furniture. It's just right. the same money, but um, it would have been a worse deal. So they they were supposed to go back to negotiations, I think, for like two days. But after that first day, they just like stopped. Um, and so then there were a few weeks where um, there wasn't much going on, except, well, well I, sh I shouldn't say that, but workers did hold a rally um, a couple weeks ago. And then... Um, yeah, so the difference is with this new tentative agreement, it really was what, um, as far as wages, it was what the unions have been fighting for, is my understanding. So a $3 minimum um, pay raise across the board um, this first year in 2023, by the end of the year, that will go into effect. Um, and then some immediate raises right away 
Um, and then over the course of the contract, it'll go up to 2050 by October 2026, which is more than double what it was a decade ago, two contract cycles ago when the minimum wage at Disney was just $10. So, um, and then it's my understanding as well that the wage raises, um, the, the raises over the course of the contract will range between um, $550 and I think it's $840. So depending on your job classification, but that's like a double digit percentage wage increase for um, a lot of these workers. So that's especially in an area like central Florida, where the cost of living has just skyrocketed. Mm. That's the difference between being able to pay rent, being able to, uh, you know, buy food for your kids and not being able to. Absolutely. And and so what has the reaction of, of the members been to this, uh, you know, as they're preparing to vote on it? As far as I know, I, it seems to be a victory. Um, I haven't had the chance to talk to a lot of individual members yet because um, unfortunately the, the announcement came literally at the same time that there was a committee meeting being heard on the anti-union legislation. Mm. So I was kind of like, I wasn't able to go to the tentative agreement announcement in person, which I was really sad about. Right. Um, I just kind of tuned in virtually, but um, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to over the next, within this, hopefully next week being able to maybe get in touch with some members and uh, talk to them about what they think about this. But it's, I think it's widely being celebrated as a victory. And what would, uh, uh, what would you, you know, covering the, this negotiation process, what would you cr uh, credit to, um, trying to think of how, how to ask this, how would, uh, uh, to what would you credit the victory, I guess, you know, why was it that, that uh, Disney came from a $1 an hour raise to a $3 an hour raise um, in the first year? What was it that, that, that kind of forced their hand? I mean, I'm sure it was definitely a multitude of factors, but not going to lie, probably all the bad press didn't help. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of just press coming, um, you know, it was from national, national press was covering this local news. And um, I know, uh, me and the, at Orlando Weekly and then over at the Orlando Sentinel, which is the primary, the bigger um, publication here in the area, just um, we've found different angles to report on as far as um, how the how wages currently for Disney World workers just is not enough to make ends meet for not just individual workers, but their families as well. And um, mm -hmm. actually just a couple of days before um, the tentative agreement was announced. I did a pretty long piece. I think it's like almost 3,000 words or maybe about 3,000 words on specifically costuming workers at Disney World, which um, were represented by IATC Local 631. And that sort of documented um, what the union describes as a gender pay gap, which is um, essentially costuming workers at Disney World who are uh, pr predominantly female, not all, but predominantly are paid less than their union siblings, uh, stage technicians, electrical techs. Mm. Um, and uh, that was a really interesting story that I, I first talked to Paul Cox, the president of that union. Um, he first mentioned it to me weeks and weeks ago, and I've been pretty busy with a, a bunch of different assignments. I'm a little bit stretched thin here, but um, but I really wanted to be able to write about that because when he first mentioned a gender pay gap within their local and not only that, mm -hmm. but he mentioned when he was surveying workers last year to kind of figure out priorities for negotiations. 
that was the number one issue within their local was closing that gender pay gap, um, even above you know higher wages in general. So, um, and I hadn't seen any reporting on that. So um, before I published my story, Truth Out actually did their own story on it as well. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, and you can find, and I'm looking at that here. The title is uh, "We're Not Birds and Mice." Costuming cast members want Disney World to close the gender pay gap. You can find that by McKenna Schuler on uh, the Orlando Weekly, uh, and I have read some of that. And it's you know, and and what are some of the you know the the cost of living stuff? You know, what were some of the stories that you were able to uncover about you know these these wages and you know not being able to to uh, cover their living expenses. Yeah, so something to understand about uh, Central Florida is, for one thing, across the state of Florida, uh, rent, average rent has gone up, I believe, 36% since 2020. And then the Central Florida region, which is the Orlando kind of region, um, it is, you know, an average like 30% uh, rent increase from 2020. Um, some people have reported just hundreds of dollars of um, in their rent increases. Um, and it's increasingly uh, more difficult to buy a home these days as well. But even like one person I talked to, um, she has a home, but she lives like an hour away um, to go to work. And then it's an hour and a half, two hours back. Plus with gas prices skyrocketing mm. um, over the last year, there was that. Um, so, Sorry, I, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. No, no, you're fine. Of your question, Jacob. Yeah, yeah. That the the uh, I was interested in knowing some of the some of the personal stories about the difficulties that they had that that these workers had faced um, in the the increase in the cost of living with their the wages that were they were getting at Disney. Yeah. So um, I I did luckily have the opportunity. Um, I think what really made the story so special was that I was able to meet with a group of like 10 workers after their shifts one day, a couple of weeks ago, we met at a, a local park kind of near their costuming warehouse. And some of, some of the cast members, employees were there just kind of like in solidarity and they didn't really talk to me necessarily, but they were just there to show support and to show that they cared about this issue, the gender pay gap that is. And um, of the people that I did talk to, I mean, they, reported similar things as far as just these huge rent hikes and um, none of the costuming workers that I know of reported necessarily being homeless, although there have been cast members across the um, parks that have um, reported seeing co-workers sleeping in their cars and such. But, um, you know, it's a lot of people just like a lot of people uh, living in one's like four to five cast members in one place just rooming up um it, it's it's a scramble like it's a, it's a huge issue that's affecting the whole region and uh the central florida uh economy is dependent upon this low wage tourist and service economy so it's something that you know at disney world they're very <laughs> lucky to have this union not everybody has that but um it is just a, a sort of regional issue right right well, before we switch gears, I wanted to ask, uh, and, and I want to point out, first of all, that this is affecting about 40,000 workers. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yeah, it's somewhere between, I think, forty-two to 45,000 workers. That's just huge. And, and how many unions are there uh, as part of this process? Because I know it's 
quite a few. Yeah, there's six unions, and I, I have it listed somewhere if I can find it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's IATSE Local 631, um, the team, uh, Teamsters Local, uh, Transportation Communications um, Union, and um, UFCW, and a couple Unite Here Locals. And I think the Unite Here Locals actually cover maybe the majority or just a higher percentage of the workers, but it's everybody from like people who are working in attractions, costuming, lifeguards, um, guest services, bus drivers, just across the board a lot of, uh, I mean, yeah, 42 to 45,000 workers. Wow, that's huge. I mean, that's this is gonna change the entire community really by by lifting up these folks uh that's going to that's going to have a positive impact everywhere and so definitely Yeah, I mean absolutely. Think about the idea of you know 40,000 people. Obviously not everybody is going to be getting the, you know, uh $3 an hour exactly, but most a lot of these 40,000 people are going to be getting a double digit wage increase in one defined area. I mean that's that's for the local, you know, the we know we understand that trickle down is more or less bunk, but the the multiplier effect that you do get in a local economy when more people, more working people have the money to spend is is really, I you know, I think that this is going to be good for the entire community. Yeah, no, I mean, actually, we saw that last with the last cycle, the Orlando Sentinel actually reported on this um, pretty closely. I, I lived in Tampa at the time, so I wasn't covering this, but um, we saw with the last cycle when they raised the minimum wage to um, $15 effective 2021, but the contract was negotiated, I believe, 2018. After Disney uh, ratified that contract, after they ratified that contract, we saw Universal and SeaWorld, which are not unionized, mm -hmm. still followed suit and began starting to raise their wages. So it is something that really sets a standard in the region. So it is incredibly important in that respect. Absolutely. Well, so uh, let's shift gears then and talk about some of the political situation in Florida. Uh, you know, I think DeSantis is more or less a household name at this point. And one of the things that he is doing is uh, attacking unions in Florida. What what are some of the ways that he's attacking labor? Down? So I'm. His one of his number one, I shouldn't say his number one enemy, but a big enemy of DeSantis is the teachers unions. Um, I mean, he's waged the war on the teachers unions. Mm -hmm. They all went behind um, his opponent, uh, Charlie Crist, last year. Um, Charlie Crist's running mate was uh, a teachers union president herself. But in January of this year, DeSantis unveiled this um, so-called Teachers' Bill of Rights that was just a blatant attack on teachers' unions. And then within a couple months, uh, Republican lawmakers uh, introduced legislation that doesn't just target uh, teachers' unions, it targets uh, public sector unions at large, um, with the exception of unions representing firefighters, cops, correction staff, and probation officers, which huh. should yeah, be mentioned, this is legislation. <laughs> yeah, the, the unions that traditionally endorse and give a lot of um, campaign cash to Republicans, including the bill sponsor of the Senate bill, which is advancing the fastest. Um, mm. 
that bill sponsor loan um, has received at least $15,000 from uh, police unions since 2020. I did a little bit digging the other day. Um, but so this legislation, I should mention, like it's it's been introduced, like similar iterations have been introduced since 2011 when Matt Gates was uh, bringing forth that legislation. And so what this legislation specifically would do would uh, place a ban on automatic dues deduction and similar, but even worse than last year's version, the bill would impose a 60% membership threshold um, where in Florida, teachers unions are already required to meet a 50% threshold and under a bill signed into law um, in 2018. But everybody I've spoken to, um, you know, it's has said it's hard to reach a 60% threshold in a right to work state. Um, and, and there are unions that have reached and surpassed the 60% threshold, but there has been just a, a wave of opposition to this legislation. The only support for it is coming, the only open support I should say is coming from uh, representatives of conservative think tanks, so. Right, of course, of course. And and that, the, the and all of these bills anywhere, you know, bills like this are, have not only historically been introduced in Florida, but they have been historically and contemporaneously introduced all across the country uh, by, you know, right-wing anti-labor freaks. And they always do basically the same thing. And they always, always have an exception for cops. And that really goes to show that this is not about, it's not about individual freedom it's not about individual liberty or an individual bill of rights. It is simply and totally naked power grabbing, um, rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, go I ahead. I should say, like, he, he's been pushed on that, too, as far as the exemption. That was one of the first questions I asked him. Um, because he argues, the Senate bill sponsor, that is, argues it's a pro-union piece of legislation because it will force um, union bosses to have more face-to-face -face conversations with their union members or workers to maintain or reach that threshold and um, to have more conversations when, um, you know, if there's a ban on dues deduction. He keeps bringing up this thing about how I guess I should say his um, his explanation for why he is exempting the cops, the firefighters, the correction staff is they are a, quote, special class of workers who work long hours, sometimes second and third shifts. And repeatedly, he's uh, mentioned he just he doesn't want these workers who are risking their lives working second and third shifts to have to go to a union rep after work to give them their check. Mm. And. Uh, the backlash that he's received about that has been just incredible. Um, before he was even asked by lawmakers and committee stops, I talked to a few union members, um, specifically teachers and faculty members on the phone, and I repeated that that explanation to them because I got a the first time I reached out to the Senate bill sponsor, he emailed me back. Um, he hasn't since, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, but I read that to them, and they and. You know, there's a lot of workers in the public sector that are working very long hours, um, mm. particularly 
one example that I hadn't really thought of before people were starting to bring it up is resident physicians and nurses at public hospitals in the state of Florida, some of whom are working upwards of 80 hours a week. And they depend on their union, but especially the resident physicians, um, they've brought up that because of how residency works, it would be pretty much impossible for them to reach and maintain that 60% threshold because of the staff, because of the turnover in their union. So they would risk um, decertification. And as a result, they would lose their union contract if right. that um, decertification went into effect. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just totally. Yeah. I mean, totally a naked power grab rewarding uh, political allies and um, and and trying to hurt political enemies. And uh, it, it's really, really, really gross. And but you mentioned in your piece that was published just yesterday, Florida's anti-union bill could risk over five hundred million dollars in federal funds. So talk to what, what you know, there's this obviously the um, the anti-union piece of it, you know, despite, you know, the insistence that it's pro-union, obviously the impact on unions would be negative. Uh, but there's also a there's an interesting fiscal component to the effects of this bill. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So before I even get to the big one, a Senate bill analysis for the Senate version estimates that um, just the recertification process for unions that fall below 60% would cost the state an estimated like over $900,000. So there's that, which is known. Mm. Um, but the thing that I've been trying to report on a little bit more over the past week, which I'm honestly surprised has not been reported on before, as far as I know, especially because similar legislation has been proposed in um you know, for the past decade, and maybe in older years, there was some reporting on it, but I haven't been able to find it, is um, a claim by, it, it came from the Amalgamated Transit Union first, um, which represents about 6,000 transit workers in the state of Florida. And they've been emailing lawmakers and bringing up um, with, they've also emailed the Department of Labor about this as well to confirm or um, just to see if this is true. But they say that if this bill passed, because of um, they say that if this bill would pass, it would um, risk over $500 million in federal transit funds for the state of Florida in this year alone, um, in the next year, because of employee protections under the Federal Transit Act. Um, and that includes the preservation of rights and benefits of employees under existing collective bargaining agreements, the continuation of collecting bargaining rights, the protection of individual employees against a worsening of their positions in relation to their employment. So the union argues that the ban on dues deduction, for instance, would um, infringe upon their right to bargain for that. And if they, if the unions were decertified, then they argue that um, that that would also violate um, the protections within the Federal Transit Act. And so because of all the money flowing in for from the Biden infrastructure bill, the unions say that that could be at risk for the state of Florida. And I know even like where I am in Orlando, that's $43 million in this year alone. But um, wow. yeah, so um, I, I'm pretty sure I broke the story on that like last week, I think. Mm -hmm. But it's and it's starting to make the rounds. And there was actually a Republican lawmaker um, on Thursday who finally brought it up with the bill sponsor. And he um, he denied it. Mm -hmm. um, then when he was pushed on it further, he said that he would double check to make sure 
he argued that um, under the law, workers don't have to be protected by, you know, a collective bargaining agreement. It can be just any sort of protective agreement. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's true. Um, he brought up, you know, there are public transit workers in other states that have outright, you know, banned uh, collective bargaining rights for public sector workers. You know, there are transit workers there that the systems do get funding. But um, so I, I still honestly like to be fully transparent. I'm not entirely sure if that would happen, if all of that money would be entirely at risk. But it seems based on communications I've read between the union, the uh, ATU and the DOL, um, and what I've heard from various people within ATU that I've talked to, it seems like the claim, um, the risk of losing all that money does have merit. Interesting. Yeah, that, that that's definitely, that's a fascinating, um, fascinating uh, uh point in that in that story um are there any any other anti-union bills that are coming uh coming from uh the florida florida's legislature or being proposed by the governor i mean that's the most explicitly anti-union but there's also a few other bills that affect labor um for instance there's a bill probably the next uh most closely linked is um hb 917 uh it's, it's called vaguely state minimum wage but essentially what it would do is um is carve out minor league players from florida's minimum wage um which is currently 11 dollars per hour um and i there's a reporter jason garcia who has been doing a lot of good reporting on that but the sad thing too is that bill is actually advancing as well which <laughs> is just incredible to think about that they, that you would do something like that when there are already a lot of minor leaguers that have um, reported poverty wage conditions Wow. Yeah, that's really, really wild. And uh, Florida is a state without a Department of Labor, I learned from your piece, uh, because there's legislation to try to reestablish a state Department of Labor after it was dismantled by Governor Jeb Bush. Yeah, so I learned about that last year. I think I'm pretty sure it was last year when I was doing some reporting on wage theft because the the State Department of Labor used to investigate those things. Mm -hmm. um, but because... Um, Florida no longer has a State Department of Labor. There is some sort of like economic agency. Um, wage theft is just incredibly widespread and there's little to no enforcement because that goes through the Florida Attorney General um, mm -hmm. who as far as a couple of policy experts I've talked to, they say that they don't really enforce it. And then the other option is to go to the federal government. But the federal government, um, the DOL can only enforce the federal minimum wage which is a lot lower than Florida's. So that's a huge issue. But right. yeah, so there's been a legislation the past couple of years by I think the same couple of people. There's actually a local um, Senator Victor Torres, who's um, a current dues paying union member um, who has proposed legislation over the past couple of years to reestablish a department, a state department of labor. And there's also a um, house equivalent as well. But of course, that legislation is languishing because right, right. <clears throat> we don't we don't need anything like that. We don't need wage theft enforcement or minimum wage enforcement at all. Uh, McKenna Schuler, reporter for the Orlando Weekly. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Is there anything else that folks ought to know about? And uh, if not, where is the best uh, place for folks to find? 
Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of bad bills this session targeting public education, faculty, um, a lot of anti-queer, anti-trans bills, which mm -hmm. intersect with labor rights. Um, I've been trying to do reporting on that, but there's a lot of good reporters in Florida that are trying to keep on this. Um, as far as my reporting, you can find me and my work at orlandoweekly.com. And I'm on Twitter way too often at, at she carries on. So thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, McKenna. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. So we are, uh, we've got a, a couple of things to wrap up with. Uh, first off, we're going to talk about this LA school strike really quickly. And it's really exciting because they, uh, what happened is that SEIU Local 99, which represents around 30,000 teacher's aides, bus drivers, custodians, cafeteria workers, and other support staff, they won an average 30% wage increase after a three-day strike uh, just last week that ended yesterday, and they got a tentative agreement yesterday. So that's, you know, strikes work is kind of the moral of that story, uh, but it's really, really, really cool. Um, these, uh, the way the raises are retroactive to 2021, which is when they began, uh, negotiation, which is when they began negotiating for this contract, when their last contract expires. And that's another example of how, you know, strikes are not something that workers take willy nilly. You know, in the L.A. Times, they quoted a, uh, quote, union critic who ran unsuccessfully for state superintendent of public instruction, Lance Christensen. He said, <clears throat> quote, what happened wasn't a negotiation. It was a hostage exchange. Wow. One need not be cynical to realize that the union used the children of LAUSD to get the deal that they wanted while the district caved to a fiscally imprudent deal. UTLA is bound to leverage the students for a similar deal soon. And this, you know, the idea, like I said, these, these raises are retroactive to when the last contract expired in 2021. That, this has been an ongoing negotiations process, and they just now struck over it. They wanted to do everything that they could before striking, uh, but they left them no other choice. And this is not an issue of, you know, these people making a ridiculous amount of money. Um, obviously, because, you know, public school support staff don't make a lot of money anywhere. Uh, but what happened is the, uh, from the, uh, I think it's uh, KTLA5 and uh, the Los Angeles Times is where I'm pulling the details from the deal from. Uh, but the deal includes a series of retroactive raises going back to 2021, as well as pay bumps this coming July and January that will collectively hike worker pay by about 30%, said Max Arias, executive director of SEIU Local 99. Uh which is the support staff union. The deal also sets the district's minimum wage at $2,252, provides a one-time $1,000 raise for any worker who was employed in 2020 in appreciation of their work during the COVID-19 pandemic and creates a $3 million educational and professional development fund for union members. Uh, district Superintendent Alberto Carvalho said at a news conference, the general raises include retroactive payments 
employed at the time, uh, 6% as of July 1st, 2021, 7% more as of July 1st, 2022, and 7% more as of July 1st, 2023. Um, so they, uh, uh, yeah, so, you know, really great. It also includes, uh, guarantees health benefits for all workers and their families if the employees work at least four hours a day and some workers will get increased hours that they said that they needed. So, you know, a really good kind of, you know, common sense stuff. You know, I mean, 22 an hour, I honestly, uh, I kind of question if that's enough for, you know, a full-time person working in LA. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. Cost of living there mm -hmm. is just extreme. Yeah. So you gotta gotta factor that in when you think about, oh, well, thirty percent, that sounds pretty large, but you know, they are they're struggling to make ends meet. And I think uh in so many of these big cities like LA and even, you know, as McKenna was talking about with parts of Central Florida, the the workers mm -hmm. are struggling yeah. to be able to afford to live in the communities in which they work. And, you know, I, I know this, he quoted this anti-union guy who ran for state superintendent. I mean, I can just tell you from, as a former educator that no educator makes the decision to be away from their students lightly. It's something that's taken very seriously. And yep. if you don't want to see a strike, the school district can resolve that. It's not that hard. Uh what happens is they get recalcitrant and they want to fight back and they don't want to make any concessions and they don't want to pay people what they deserve or treat people the way they want they need to be uh, treated. But it's very easy to avoid those strikes for school districts. And, you know, it's unfortunate that right. one of the common talking points is, oh, it hurts the children. Oh, it hurts the children. Oh, you know, the children, the right. children, the children. Well, what also hurts the children is when you have staffing shortages. What also hurts right. the children is when you don't have qualified professionals there to serve them uh, and on and on. So it's not something that the education unions do lightly. Uh, and when they go on strike, they are striking for their students. They are striking for their students, for their schools, for the families and communities served by those schools. Uh, it's not just about them. It's, it's really a bigger picture issue. And I, I always get disgusted when you see those talking points because a lot of times in these care-based professions, which are predominantly female professions, like nurses and teachers, other educators, uh, it's used as leverage against them that, oh, you can't strike because what about the children? You can't strike. What about the patients? And, you know, that's just, it's just not right because... These workers have a right to protest. They have a right to strike. They have a right to fight for what they deserve. And I think in most cases, what you find is that the families understand it and support the educators. Despite how much media and how much anti-union folks try to pit the, the yeah, community absolutely. versus the educators. Absolutely, and that was the case here. Most uh, of the time, the community Even though, it. you know, freaks like... This Christensen is talking about, oh, they use the kids as hostage. Parents joined these folks on the picket line, um, and parents were supportive. I haven't seen in the coverage of this any right. <clears throat> any parents being quoted as, as being against this strike, which, of course, there are some, but the fact that 
you know, they're not being put forward in the media is, is, you know, it tells you that, that there's, there's not very many of these folks out there. Right. Um, and also it's important to note that the strike was not just, uh, right. done by the support staff. It was also a company. They were also accompanied on, on the picket line by the UTLA, the teachers union of Los Angeles, which made the strike effective. And, um, and, and the schools had to, did have to be shut down for three days. Um, which shows you, you know, that there's power in numbers, right? right. And whereas, mm-hmm, whereas if the, um, you know, if just there's the support power staff and had struck and the teachers crossed the picket line, then, you know, it may have been more difficult for them to get what they needed. But uh, because the teachers showed solidarity with them, um, they were able to, you know, get what they were asking for, get more of what they were asking for, um, which is, again not unreasonable stuff very very reasonable and i was just thinking about the cost of living these people have their minimum wage set now at 22 an hour uh we just talked about an hour ago how bus drivers in madison city make 23 an hour right so this is you know so it's not it's really Mm. not it's not a bankrupting kind of deal that like this guy is, is trying to make you think so so um and and that's Madison City school bus drivers in Alabama without a union, right? So, you know, the idea that that UT that the that the um LA Unified School District shouldn't be paying their support staff as much as non-union school bus drivers make in Alabama is pretty pretty wild. Right. And and yeah. let's not act like Los Angeles doesn't have the money. I mean, there's so much wealth in that city. Uh, they can afford to yeah. fund schools appropriately and fund the staff appropriately. No question about mm-hmm. it. But, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned the teachers joining in. That was huge, and that's what you need to see. And, you know, to any educators listening, don't let that lesson be lost on you because uh, a lot of times teachers – custodians, cafeteria workers, you know, they all kind of get in their own little worlds and they all have their own specific issues. And sometimes there's tensions between these groups inside the schools. But ultimately, you're all there for the kids. You're all there to make the school successful. And you're all facing similar struggles. And you're all reporting to bosses. So that is where, and, and by helping each other, you can be so much more effective uh, because ultimately, the more effective each group is, the more effective the entire. Absolutely, of, of the uh, William is Teamster from California says in other. the chat, uh, they didn't use children. What a bunch of crap! They improved the lives of the community. Absolutely true. He said on his way to work, I passed by three SEIU local ninety nine picket lines. It was a joyous scene when they saw a Teamster on their side. Great to see. And he also agrees that you know twenty two an hour is really even still not enough. You got to make over a hundred thousand to live in L A. And that L.A., speaking to the point of, you know, do they have enough money? L.A. is one of the richest cities in the country in the fourth largest econ- and the fourth largest economy in the world. So, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So they can afford it. They can do it. Happy to see this victory. Uh, direct action can get the goods. And, uh, you know, I'm not super familiar with the SEIU local. I know UTLA in recent years has been much more militant 
uh, and they've you know had kind of a de- democratic revitalization of the union. So you know that's just promising, and and I think what you yeah, see is that absolutely. teachers and support staff um, across the country are going to education. Adam, you had an update on this uh, Rocket City Re- Reckoning story that um, that we're following, and we're going to have more and a lot more in depth on next week. But you had something of a of a small update for us this week. Yeah, so I wanted to update folks a little bit. Um, Last week, we brought attention to a new effort called Rocket City Reckoning. It's a website, rocketcityreckoning.com, and there are explosive allegations against Huntsville City Schools and its leadership. That includes allegations of sexual abuse and physical abuse being covered up, allegations of corruption and profiteering and uh, misuse of funds, allegations of all kinds of mismanagement uh, and, and the creation of a toxic and hostile work environment. Uh, it's pretty deep. It's a, There's a lot. There's a lot there. And um, a couple of updates. Uh, I did sit down and interview Dr. O'Brien, who is the main person behind Rocket City Reckoning. He is a local education professor. And um, if you didn't catch the segment last week, long story short, this is a man who volunteered. He volunteered to be on the school district's official desegregation advisory committee, which is part of a court order. Uh, and so he just he wanted to help out. He wanted to he knew he knew, you know, there were some issues with the school system and he was trying to help. And uh, through that role, he continually uncovered more and more and more just disturbing incidents, disturbing evidence. And he, you know, went to the district. He talked to the district's lawyers, the superintendent, board members. He went through all the proper channels, and it was clear they didn't want to work with him. He went to the local press, and the local press has pretty much ghosted him. And I think that's a sad reflection on our local press, frankly. Uh, because there's enough, there's enough, there's enough smoke there to be able to find some fires. You know, I can't speak to a hundred percent of the allegations on on that website. You know, I don't want to be irresponsible and, and do that. Uh, but what I can tell you is there's enough, there's enough smoke there to be concerned about real fires, uh, and it's serious enough to warrant attention. And so I am disappointed, though not surprised, that local media has yet to pick up on any of it. Um, Just this past week, the Rocket City Reckoning folks held a protest at Chapman Middle School, uh, actually pretty close to the studio here in Huntsville. And uh, the biggest update to Huntsville City Schools, though, is that just yesterday evening, Christy Finley, the superintendent for the past five years, has announced her retirement at the end of the school year. You know, it's interesting timing. Uh, you know, can we say why she retired necessarily? I, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, does it have anything to do with these allegations that are leaking out about her leadership and her uh, school system? You know, I don't know. I don't know. Could just be a coincidence. Uh I'll have more to say on that, frankly, with some time. Um, 
because I did work on the other side of the table from Christy Finley for some time. Uh, I'm pretty familiar with her leadership or lack thereof. And so, uh, you know, I probably will have a little something more formal to say about that and the state of the school system and, and what I hope to see moving forward in the future. Um, you know, as I said last week, on this show, we're always going to support public schools. We're always going to support public education, especially from those outside threats, the privatization crowd, the corporate school reform crowd, the a charter and voucher and school choice crowd. We're always going to protect public education from them and advocate for public education. But we recognize public education has its flaws, right? And it has its inequities. And unfortunately, public schools have, like any institution that is run by humans, there are some bad humans inside them. There are bullies, there are crooks, there are narcissists, there are profiteers. And and too many of our school districts across the state and across the country, those people have gained power. They have worked their way up the ranks. They have stepped up the ladder and, you know, with no concern for who they stepped on, moving up that ladder. And I think it's very important that folks are engaged in their local schools, in their local community school, the school district in their community, uh, and in their state. Because ultimately, they are for the public. They're not for contractors to make a buck. They are not just, you know, part of the PR machine of a city establishment. They're there to educate children, to serve our families and our community. They're supposed to be there to strengthen our democracy. So, Huntsville City Schools is going through some changes now with the superintendent announcing her retirement at the end of the year. And this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for them to do better. Because for too long in that school district, it has been sabotaged from the inside out. And in 2016, we had an another opportunity. And unfortunately, it was not as successful as it needed to be. In 2016, Casey Wardinsky resigned in disgrace amid scandal, and two board members, two former educators, two strong women were elected, and so the board was changed, but unfortunately it was two out of five, that's a minority, and what happened was when we should have had a cleaning of the house, when we should have had a clear regime change, and revitalized the school system from the bottom up in a democratic fashion that engaged the public, that did not happen, not to the extent that it should have. And so these issues that have been simmering for you know over a decade now continue, and that's why they have one of the worst teacher retention rates in the state. A city, the biggest city in the state, a city of such wealth and potential, Huntsville put a man on the moon, can't keep a teacher in the classroom. It's sad. And it could be better. And it should be better. Because we all deserve better. So we'll see. Stay tuned. Stay tuned to the developments. Um, we did speak with Jason from Rocket City Reckoning, and it was quite an interview, let me tell you. And it's going to take us a little bit of time 
because we want to handle it appropriately. Unfortunately, you know, it shouldn't be up to a couple of union guys with a talk show to do that kind of journalism. There are all these folks who are, who are supposed to be in local media and in state media who are supposed to be investigative journalists. And I would really encourage them to take a look because there's a lot of allegations and there are recordings and there are videos and there are eyewitness testimonies. And like I said, I can't, I can't vouch for everything, nor would I. That's not my place. But certainly as someone who taught in the system for three years and who spent over five years representing the employees in the system, you know, I saw the dark underbelly of the system and I'm pretty familiar with it. So as I said, there's a lot of smoke there. There are some fires there. And I encourage our local media to address it. Mm. When there are yeah. protests at a school, you should probably ask why. I'm just saying. And so I uh, wanted to give folks that brief update. So stay tuned. I, like I said, I encourage folks to check out Rocket City Reckoning on Facebook or rocketcityreckoning.com to see what you yeah. make of and, it. Uh... Lastly, and, and, we've got this quick bit about uh, 10 workers in Birmingham walking out uh, in solidarity with uh, their union brothers and sisters in New York City, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. These are workers for Hearst Magazines. They unionized in 2020 with the Writers Guild of America East, and they still do not have a first union contract. Uh, so three years later, three years nearly after their union wow. election— and their employer still hasn't given them a fair contract. Um, really pretty gross stuff. So the union said that this walkout was to show the company that, you know, we're serious about this. We're serious about getting a fair contract. And, and you know, you need to take us seriously. Uh, the union told Deadline that uh, they're seeking, quote, fair wage increases, better severance, and strong anti-harassment protections, among other demands. So they're not being super clear about exactly what the point, you know, what the tension is at, at the bargaining table. Uh, but, you know, there's some ideas about some of the issues there. Uh, William Thornton for Alabama.com for AL.com spoke to Chris Michelle, a union bargaining representative in Alabama. He said about 20 people took part in the Birmingham walkout. He is the senior food and garden editor at Country Living. And he said uh, Country Living and Veranda Magazine employees in Birmingham were involved. Uh, he is quoted in the Yale.com piece as saying, We voted in 2020 to unionize, and we've been at the negotiating table since then trying to get a contract, and we've not been able to come to an agreement. We've been negotiating in good faith, and management has repeatedly shown that they are not taking us seriously. The walkout is our attempt to make clear to management that the employees are really serious about having a fair contract. So... All the love and solidarity to those folks down in Birmingham and the rest of the country working for Hearst Magazine and trying to get a fair contract, um, you know, look and looking forward to uh, reporting soon about their victory. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hope so. And glad yeah. to see some direct action here in Alabama. And thanks to William Thornton for covering it, uh, you know. I'm, I know I'm hard on the Alabama media, so I'll, I'll uh, say thank you. With that, we're going to go ahead right and wrap up, folks. We appreciate your article. time.
Um, just a reminder, sign up for our daily or weekly newsletter. Just make a note yeah. of which one you wanted to be added to at tvlr.fm slash contact. Um, you can also let us know through that if you would be interested in having us speak at your uh, local union meeting about potentially sponsoring a sh- uh, sponsoring the show, your union sponsoring the show, or speaking at a union convention, something like that. You can donate yourself at tvlr.fm slash donate, uh, become a recurring donor, uh, or patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Uh, we have some merch on our website, tvlr.fm slash store that you can get if you want something a little more material for your money. I understand that. And so we want to make provision for that as well. Um, and with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap. Appreciate everybody's time. And we will see you on Thursday with the next episode of Shop Talk and on Saturday with a brand new episode of The Valley Lake.